0: Welcome to the 282nd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Heather Young, author of the novel The Distant Dead. Stay tuned for the interview. Before we get to my interview with Heather Young, here is a short excerpt from the audiobook of The Distant Dead. Available wherever audiobooks are sold, brought to you by Harper Audio. Narrated by Eva Kaminsky, Charlie Thurston, Jim Meskimen, and Cassandra Campbell. Here is a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Distant Dead by Heather Young.
1: The boy shouldn't have been in the cave. He knew this. He was a good boy. The sort of boy who cared about shoulds and shouldn'ts. But the thrill of this particular shouldn't made him feel like a different sort of boy. The sort of boy he wished he were. It was why he was there. The air outside the cave was wavy with late summer heat. But the air inside was cool, and on his tongue it tasted of dust and daring. He was 12 years old, and he was alone for the first time in his life. The cave was some distance from where his people made their camp by the great lake. But they could see it, a black eye in a cliff that surveyed the wide, flat basin. They came to this shore every few seasons, following rabbits and other small game through the wetlands. In their stories, the cave was a place that drove men so mad that they returned from it unable to speak. Even the seers, who lived mostly in dreams. There was a seer among them now, a bent old man who had visited the cave the summer the boy was born. The boy kept his distance from him, as all the boys did. But he watched as the old man spent long, wordless hours drawing circles in the dirt. Sometimes the seer looked up from his tracings, and in his bottomless black eyes, the boy thought he saw not madness or terror, but something like awe. As he stood at the mouth of the cave, the boy marveled at the earth stretched wide below him. The grasses close to the lake gave way to low brush at the feet of the rocky bluffs that rose above the basin floor like blisters. The lake itself was vast, a blue sheet vanishing into the shimmering sky to the north and east. His people called it Alelum, which in their language meant water of life. 10,000 years later, a different people, half the world away, would make Alelu a song of praise. By then, the Great Lake would be gone, leaving a flattened desert in its wake. Above the boy's head, an eagle soared, black against the sky, a beautiful, wild thing that would be dead before the season was done. The boy was beautiful too, with a face as delicate as a girl's and long-lashed brown eyes. He was his mother's only child to live past the suckling years. Like her other babies, he had been sickly and small, and even now he was slight. But unlike his brothers and sisters, he had latched his translucent lips fast to her breast and would not let go. Now he was a singer of songs and a teller of stories, with a voice even the elders hushed to hear around the fire. Tonight, the elders would anoint the boy a man, together with two other boys born in the same season. But the boy didn't feel like a man. He saw the arcing muscles of the other boy's arms and the proud bones hardening in their faces, and believed himself to be a child. He heard them talk about the hunts they would join, and knew himself to be afraid of the wild boar and the charging mastodon. He didn't see how the elders listened when he read the stars or how the other boys looked at him when they spoke, to see what he thought. He saw only how far short of the other boys his stone fell when he threw it in the lake, and how far behind them he ran. He had come to the cave because in the last hours of his boyhood, he wanted to do something brave. So in the lazy part of the afternoon, while his mother slept on the dirt floor of their shelter, he ran through the grass to the foot of the cliff and climbed until the eye and the rocks became a mouth. Now he took one last look at the bright curve of the world and walked inside. The air was suddenly cold. The ceiling was low, the walls barely visible in the dark. A fine dust, bat guano mixed with sand the wind blew in, sifted over the boy's rough tool sandals. He moved slowly braced for the visitation that had struck the old seer dumb, but found only silence. After 20 halting steps, he had reached the back of the cave. Still nothing disturbed the cool, dead air. He put his hands on the stone and waited for it to speak to him. But it said nothing. Then, in the ghost edge of daylight, the boy saw a narrow opening, the width of his arm and half his high where the wall met the floor. He looked back to the cave's mouth and the bright blue disk of sky. He knew he should leave now. His mother would be awake soon and calling for him. But the cave, after the trouble he'd taken to get here, was a disappointment. He turned from the sky and crawled into the crevice.
0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Heather Young, author of the new novel, The Distant Dead. Young's previous novel was The Lost Girls. Heather, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be here.
0: Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your novel, The Distant Dead, yet, how would you describe the novel?
2: Well, um, it's a mystery that is set in Lovelock, which is a small desert town in Nevada, literally 100 miles from anywhere else. Um, and one morning, on his way to catch the school bus, a boy finds his math teacher's body burned to death in the hills outside of town. The math teacher had once been a university professor in Reno, but he'd moved to Lovelock to teach in the middle school just a few months before that. Um, he, was, he was a quiet guy who kept to himself, and the boy who finds his body was the only person in Lovelock that he'd, that he'd really connected with. Um, they were both outsiders and lonely and they kind of formed a father-son kind of bond. But soon, one of the other teachers at the middle school, a woman named Nora, starts to wonder if the boy knows something about how the math teacher died. So the book weaves together the story of the math teacher's last few months in Lovelock and the period right after he dies, when Nora is trying to win the boy, the boy who finds him, win his trust and figure out if it was someone from the math teacher's past in Reno who killed him or whether it was someone in Lovelock.
0: And so do you remember the original idea that led you to write The Distant Dead?
2: Well, my husband and kids and I had, um, we used to drive from San Francisco to Boise, Idaho to visit my parents. And the drive took us across the Great Basin, which is the big flat, high desert that covers most of Nevada and while we were making that drive, we stumbled across this town, Lovelock. And it just kind of haunted me. It's so lonely and so barren that it it's 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 remarkable to me that people live there and that they stay there and that they seem to enjoy being there. I mean, it was just something that that stuck with me and and I knew that someday I would set a story there. And then um a friend of mine um, saw a documentary and she told me that the documentary was about um, a math teacher's body that was found burned in um, outside a small town in Nebraska. And that also just struck me. That just, that, that got my imagination firing. So I created a fictional math teacher with a mysterious past I moved him to Lovelock and I set him on fire. (laughs) The rest of the story grew from that.
0: And, and so what was, your, what was your path to publication um, prior to your first novel being published, The Lost Girls?
2: Well, I spent probably seven years writing The Lost Girls. It was, um, yeah, I was, it was, I was a mom raising kids. I was fairly busy and I kind of did it when I could find the time. And when it was finally done, um, I sent out kind of blank, uh, blind query letters to some agents and was lucky enough to find uh, my agent, uh, Michelle Brower, pretty quickly. And then she um, took it out. And I was lucky enough again to be matched up with uh, my editor at uh, William Morrow, uh, Kate Ninzel.
0: And and so um, prior to that period of writing The Lost Girls, had you had you? Um, always written, or what was the impetus for uh, the Lost Girls?
2: I had never written, and I had never taken so much as a creative writing class in college. I was an economics and international relations major, and then in my prior life, I had been a lawyer for about ten years, working in kind of antitrust and intellectual property litigation, which was again not fiction writing <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Um, I had then spent about 10 years not doing that, but raising my kids. But all throughout my life, I have been an avid reader. Um, Mysteries, fantasy, literary fiction, pretty much everything. I'm pretty widely read um, in terms of genre. And I'd always kind of harbored this thought that someday I'd write a novel. And, And when my kids were getting a little bit older and I had more time on my hands, I had to decide if I wanted to go back to law. Or try something new and and I and I really found I didn't have the appetite for the litigation wars anymore. And I thought, why not try the novel thing? I, I actually thought in my naivete that it would be really easy, that I would just spend six months <laughs> writing a novel and then it would be published and made into a movie and I'd be really happy. <laughs> and it took seven years and a two-year detour to get an MFA and it was it was quite quite a challenge.
0: And and so, what was that seven year process like for you? Um, well, did you pers- did you have to kind of learn how to write fiction?
2: Oh my gosh, yes. Um, as it turns out, uh, I I had always liked the writing side of law, the the briefing process. Um, it turns out that that's really not the same thing as writing a novel. And so I had to learn to take that very literal, direct kind of language that you use when you're writing legal papers, and and learn to give myself the freedom. To have the more metaphorical um, language that a novel would have. So that was that was a big part of, of just really changing how I built sentences, like from the ground up, I had to learn that. And then just the process of crafting the novel, I, I found that I, I learned later that this is kind of a common problem for first-time novelists. You kind of write the first three chapters and then you don't know where to go after that. You've got your little setup and you've introduced your characters. And maybe you even know the ending, but there's like these 250 pages in the middle that you have to write. And I didn't know how to do that, and so that's when I decided to go and get and, and get some help in graduate school. And um, and that was a two-year process of of doing a lot of reading of other people's books, mostly, and figuring out what those middle 200 pages are supposed to look like, and and figuring out how to write them.
0: And so I'm curious about that MFA uh, experience for you because I know that some MFA programs um, tend to tend to not be geared towards commercial fiction. Did, did you find the MFA process for you helpful?
2: I found it helpful, and you're right, by the way. Um, they aren't geared towards commercial fiction, and uh, that that was you know I I when I came out and wrote a book that turned out to be kind of commercial. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's okay. You can actually write commercial fiction in a more literary way. I think sure, the difference is sure. really more in the pacing than in the writing style, but that's probably a whole other conversation. Um, I would say the MFA helped me because it gave me, as someone who had in her prior working life, lived and died by a calendar and a schedule and deadlines, the MFA program gave me that kind of structure that I really, really needed. I had to turn in pages every month. I couldn't be late. I would often stay up all night, two nights in a row before it happened so I could get it done. And and that was helpful. Also, uh, the community of other writers, especially the fellow students, was terrific because I did not know anybody else who was trying to write a novel when I started. And finding a whole cohort of people scattered across the country who were kind of my age, mid-40s, trying this on as a second career was really, really helpful having that supportive network.
0: And so have you stayed in touch with those people?
2: I have. And in fact, they, they are my beta readers, if, if, you, if that's a word that people use. Sure. Um, <laughs> they, yes. And we get together every year or so. It, it's been a terrific – I mean, it's been over 10 years since I finished that program, and I'm still in very close touch with those people.
0: And, and where did you go? What, what was the program?
2: I went to the Bennington uh, Low Residency Program.
0: Um, so, what did you what did you discover about those two hundred and fifty middle pages that that you um, mentioned earlier?
2: Well, I learned um, one of my teachers at Bennington put it best. I think she said, "You you reach a point where you where you feel like you've run out of story, and you're just kind of spinning your wheels. And what you need to realize is that each chapter is kind of its own story. And when you Stop thinking about the 250 pages as this giant mass of words that you somehow have to regurgitate onto the page and think of it as smaller chunks of here's a 10 page segment of story that I'm going to write and what do I want to do in this chapter? What do I want the characters to get out of it and how do I want them to progress? And then those are little building blocks that get you to the end of those 250 pages and literally thinking of it as bricks instead of a wall is enormously helpful.
0: And so what is your writing process like when you're working on a novel? Do you outline and plan it extensively, or are you writing more organically to see what happens?
2: I am definitely a more organic writer. Um, I mean, I've only done this twice, (laughs) but so far it seems as though I am the kind of writer who's going to know the ending, but isn't going to know how to get there and is going to have to sort of grope in the dark and figure out my way from the beginning to the end. So it takes me longer, I think, than people who have an outline and a, and a plan. But for me, I find that the few times I've tried to be more organized about outlining things, I start to feel really hemmed in and my writing starts to look like legal writing again. So it's best for me not to have that, that structure.
0: And I'm curious if you've noticed any changes to your writing process from novel to novel.
2: Um. This novel required a little bit more research, not a lot more, but a little bit more. So I did have to figure out ways to balance that out, like the balance between when you do the research and when you do the the actual writing. I know a lot of people do all their research before they start, and I found that I'm more the type of person who will write and write and write and go, oh, I should probably figure out if that's correct, and then I'll go and research it.
0: (laughs) And so earlier you were talking about um, being a passionate reader Prior to um, kind of starting your your um, journey as a fiction writer, I'm curious were there any favorite um novels or favorite writers that you um, come back to over time that you um, look to and especially I'm um, thinking about now as a fiction writer are there any that you look to to um, not necessarily copy obviously but that inspire you
2: well i yes I um Marilyn Robinson. I know that my novels are not really like hers at all, but I, I do emulate her writing style because what I think she does so beautifully is she writes poetically and gorgeously, but also simply about people's lives that from the outside might seem to be very ordinary. And I think, I think that's, that's a real gift and my books so far do involve ordinary people living ordinary lives, even if something catastrophic happens in the middle of it like a murder. And so I, I never I try to never lose sight of the fact that I'm dealing with ordinary people living an extraordinary moment in their lives. and I want to be able to to um, to write the way Marilyn Robinson does about those those people and their, and, what the, and the emotions that they're going through and the way they're feeling about what they're experiencing. So I do go back and read Gilead and some of her other books over and over again to just try to find that peaceful rhythm of words that she's so good at.
0: And have you started thinking about or writing your next novel?
2: i started thinking about it. Um, I don't know exactly when this will come out, but uh, you and I are talking in late April and things have been pretty stressful in the world (laughs) the last couple of months. So I will say that it's been difficult to move on to that next book, but um, I do have the, I have the idea for it and um, it will be set in, I like setting my books in small towns. So this one will be set in a small town in Iowa during world war II. So it'll be a, a bit of a historical piece. And
0: so what advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening and are writing their own stories or novels?
2: Um, I mean, I would give the obvious advice, which is just to, to keep at it. Honestly, I think the difference between people who finish a novel and the people who start a novel but don't finish it is that the people who finish it just keep, just stay in the chair, keep coming back to it, even if you have a few months of fallow time where you move on to other parts of your life. Keep coming back. And then the other advice I would give, because this really worked for me, is to read read fiction you love by writers you think do the job well, and try to deconstruct the work. Read it once for pleasure and then go back and try to deconstruct it. Try to see what that writer is doing with each chapter in the book because I think that is a great way to learn the craft of writing.
0: Great. Well, what books, fiction or nonfiction, have you read recently that you would recommend?
2: Well, I just finished The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. And that is a wonderful book. Um, I am halfway through *Kept Animals*, which is Kate Milliken's newest, and she had previously written short stories. This is her first novel, and it's absolutely stunningly written. And I'm deeply engaged in every page of it. And then um, again, because of the times we're living in, I was looking for something a little lighter, and I read um, *Nothing to See Here* by Kevin Wilson. It came out a couple of years ago, and it's a well-written but on the lighter side, um, book about two children who spontaneously combust when they get upset. (laughs) (laughs) I'd recommend that to anybody who's looking for just a little diversion in their lives.
0: Gotcha. So where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your books?
2: So I'm at uh, heatheryoungwriter.com is my website. And then um, I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Twitter handle is at hYoungWriter. And Instagram is also the same, H. Young Writer.
0: Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Heather Young, author of the new novel, The Distant Dead. Go grab a copy of the novel now. And Heather, thanks for doing this interview.
2: Thank you very much. It was great to be here.
0: If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and Writing Podcast special offer? Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.